Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. A few chapters ago, we heard a story where Jacob wrestled with a man in the wilderness shortly before encountering his brother Esau, who at the time, Jacob had every reason to believe, was going to kill him. After that wrestling match with that random man in the wilderness, Jacob claims that he went toe-to-toe with God and beat him and took the insult that was his new name Israel as a badge of honor. That character was not God, but here, today, we hear the story of how God himself calls Jacob Israel. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were there with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. The first obvious detail that sticks out to me is the fact that God himself is finally speaking again to our current main character. Remember, anytime God speaks, we must pay attention to what exactly he is saying, and when, in the rhythm of the story, it is that he speaks. Think back to episodes past where we heard the various ways in which Jacob outright twisted God's words and boasted in himself receiving God's prosperity. We looked at specific examples of Jacob quoting God and then compared it to what God actually said in his own words, in his own dialogue, only to discover that Jacob was actually misquoting God for his own benefit. Take that into consideration, along with the various other problematic actions Jacob has performed, and we can see Jacob for what he really is. In the previous chapter, however, he behaved perhaps the most scripturally out of all of his stories. His sons were the primary actors of wickedness in the last chapter, so it is no surprise that the following chapter features more dialogue from God, now that Jacob is perhaps a bit more willing to hear what he has to say. So let us once again focus on what God is saying. At the beginning here in chapter 35, he says, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God seems to be referring to the events that we heard about in chapter 28. This is an interesting detail to include in chapter 35 because it was back in that event in chapter 28, which was more than 20 years ago chronologically, that Jacob set up a stone 
and called it the house of God, which we talked about was bad news. Jacob made God into an idol. God cannot be reduced into an idol of stone. I think we all understand that. So now that Jacob seems to be learning and taking to heart the ways in which he should behave under God's aegis, God speaks an instruction to him that will undo that incorrect behavior from chapter 28. He tells him to go to that very specific place that Jacob was in during a very specific part of his life when he did a very specific thing. And he tells him to make an altar to the God who appeared to him. Note, not the God of Jacob's tongue, but the God who appeared to him. Then we hear Jacob's following actions. He doesn't boast about this conversation with God to his household, and he doesn't use it as some kind of leverage against another character like he has in previous stories. He commands his household to prepare and purify themselves by putting away their other gods and taking out the flagrant jewelry in their ears. This also illustrates Jacob's growing understanding of the supremacy of this god of gods, as he calls him two chapters ago. Right, and this switch in Jacob and his community in general is emphasized in the command to change their garments. It's symbolic, and it goes hand in hand with Jacob hiding the foreign gods from Laban under the terebinth tree. Jacob is burying the Mesopotamian lifestyle he has become accustomed to, and is apparently finally moving beyond his function as a rebellious usurper who is constantly at odds with God's commands. He not only buries these gods, but he buries them at Shechem. It was the previous incident at Shechem which prompts this change in behavior in Jacob. We have seen this growing sore fester and grow until it finally pops when his sons not only mimic their father's behavior, but go even further than he ever did. Jacob's actions never resorted to outright slaughter, but his sons now have blood on their hands. It's also interesting to hear this text back to back with the previous chapter. It ends with Simeon and Levi attempting to justify their actions to Jacob because the Shechemites, quote, treated their sister like a prostitute. And we don't ever hear Jacob's response. He has no response. God simply interjects and commands Jacob to go to Bethel a place where Jacob essentially began his journey as he fled the wrath of Esau. God is reorienting Jacob's story and is making his path straight. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. So here we have a satisfying follow-up to the previous section. Nothing unexpected. God does what he said he would do, which is watch over Jacob, after Jacob responds accordingly. The place of Bethel, like Blaze alluded to, serves as a sort of reset. The last time Jacob went there, God told him he would give him that land for him and his descendants, but Jacob doesn't listen. He instead constructs the God in his mind and out of stone, and then with the false idea that this God will make him prosper in whatever which way he thinks, he went to Mesopotamia and lied, cheated, and stole for 20 years. Now God is telling him to go back to that place, to Bethel, to make an altar to the God who actually appeared to him which is not the God Jacob constructed by his own volition, 
and Jacob is finally starting to understand the difference. We can know that due to the immediate response Jacob has and the care with which he treats this situation. He seems to have begun understanding the function and role this God plays over him. He starts to be a bit more quiet during conflict, like last chapter, and a bit more immediate and proactive in responding to this God when he orders Jacob to do something, like in this chapter. This is evidenced by Jacob's new name for what he previously called Bethel. So building upon his old name for the place, he calls it El Bethel, which is the God of the house of God. Yeah, this double emphasis on El is really fascinating here. There's no longer the house that Jacob has built for God. This is Jacob realizing that God has taken ownership over his attempts to control the deity. The God of Jacob's forefather Abraham is not one that exists in a figurine made of stone, nor does he exist in any temple built by man. This God is completely out of Jacob's control, and he is finally realizing this. Exactly. Jacob is beginning to realize that this God that has appeared to him and has continued to appear to him is not a God of his own construction and device and dialogue, but a God that cannot be bent to the will of man. The God Jacob constructed an idea of and subsequently trapped in the stone at Bethel in chapter 28 is the God of Jacob's success in Mesopotamia. The God who actually appeared to him, however, is the God who is above the constructs of the human mind. The God who actually appeared to him is the one who is able to make such constructs, such as Jacob's God-housed idol, functional. Jacob calls this God the God, quote, who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone, end quote. He realizes that the God he constructed is not the God who appeared to him at Luz. Even the text makes this clear. Because despite Jacob's renaming of Luz to Bethel in chapter 28, the narrator continues to refer to it as Luz, affirming for our sake as the audience that Jacob's renaming is illegitimate. However, the new name of El Bethel shows Jacob's growing understanding of this ultimate functionator God, and what is especially telling of this growing understanding is the seemingly random inclusion of Deborah's death. We have never heard of this character before, uh, this story, so it strikes us as arbitrary. But we must remember that if a detail seems arbitrary and can be easily removed from a story in the Bible, it is of ultimate importance. The name Deborah in Hebrew is the feminine form of the word dabar, for word, or the verb meaning to speak. It has a more formal connotation than just talking. God says things to characters, but when he speaks to characters, it's a bigger deal than normal. This word is also particular because often when it is used, it is used in repetition. In the last chapter, and in this one, it is used in a triplet, with one occurrence of it used in Deborah's name to signify the thematic bridge between those two triplets, one triplet being negative and the other positive. Remember, in the last chapter, Shechem, the son of Hamor, defiled Dinah, so Jacob's sons make a deal with them that they end up going back on by slaughtering all of them out of revenge. In that chapter, the word debar is used in a triplet to describe the agreement made between Jacob's sons and Shechem and Hamor. It says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this debar to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. 
then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. There Dabar pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young man did not delay to do the Dabar, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So the Dabar in that situation is the culmination of Jacob's wicked behavior, which is acted out by his sons. They are images of their father. They are the product of Jacob's household. So the Dabar they concoct is one of deceit and violence toward the stranger. This Jacobian Dabar is a manipulation of the Dabar, which Jacob received from the scriptural God. That is why the death of Deborah is not random. The feminine form of this word Dabar is uncommon, and the fact that it is the name of a character mentioned so strategically in the middle of Jacob's character progression marks that the manipulated, pure Dabar, Deborah, is coming to an end. Likewise, the beginning of chapter 35, the chapter we are reading today, works to communicate the ways Jacob is changing and learning the error of his ways and becoming more obedient to the scriptural God, aka the God that we, as the audience, hopefully have not lost sight of in favor of the God of the deceitful Jacobian dialogue of chapters past. We were warned by the character of the serpent way back in Genesis 3 to not trust the dialoguing, slick, deceitful snake. And the text is actively working and testing us to see whether or not we, like the characters, listen to the God we are presented with or the God of the serpent slash Jacob, who are the same character. Jacob's incorrect behavior, which was culminated in the Debar crafted by his sons, is no more. It is dead. And that is signified by the death of Deborah, as the household of Jacob is on their way to encounter once again the one who has presented Jacob with another opportunity to obey. What is more is that Deborah is the nurse of Rebekah, Jacob's mother. Rebekah is the one who set Jacob on this path and helped him cheat his brother out of his inheritance. She was a woman of the city, the birthplace of greed and deceit. Now, in her old age, Rebekah's nurse has died. Rebekah is likely not too far behind her. The grip that this city mindset has on Jacob is slipping as well. I'd also like to mention that as well as being the feminine form of Debar, Deborah also literally means bee in Hebrew. And what do bees do? They sting. So the application is even more appropriate in that context. It's difficult to understand completely as an English speaker how word, matter, and thing would be related to be. But in Hebrew, all of those concepts are presented within that root. So the original hearers would have picked up on this immediately. It's also no coincidence that another character named Deborah will effectively emasculate the impotent Israelite males when she takes leadership over the tribes as a judge in the book of Judges. So if there's anyone listening who carries the name Deborah, you might have the most powerful name in the Bible, so wear it with pride. Now, before we move on, uh, I did mention that there was another triplet of this word Debar in this chapter, and this triplet, unlike the previous one, is positive. However, I won't discuss it until we have read it, so let us continue. 
God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Here we finally have God, the true scriptural God, officially renaming Jacob to Israel. It is often assumed by commentators that the man Jacob wrestles in chapter 32 was either God or an angel of God, but there's nothing in the text to empirically prove that reading. Jacob is the only one in the text who associates that character with God, which is problematic because it is essentially at the height of his deceit. As we demonstrated in the earlier chapters, he was already known to twist events and even direct commands from God if it meant that it would serve him as a result. We can't trust anything he says, but here it's unquestionably God doing the action. And it's also further evidence that the man Jacob wrestles with was not God, because if it was, it would make this entire section redundant. Why tell the same story twice? Well, that's precisely it. It's not the same story. The biblical authors, I believe, are using this story to tell you, the listener, that this is finally the real deal. Jacob is no longer in the driver's seat. Absolutely. It's the end of Jacob's Debar and the reinstatement of God's Debar after more than 20 years. The second triplet that I mentioned earlier uh, occurs in the reading we just went through, and I want to highlight it because it's a big deal to notice these things. And I know that sounds silly, but the way we are hearing the text, taking the time to gloss out these details, is so extremely valuable. In the long run, it'll prevent us from mishandling the text like many of those who came before us, those who planted the seeds of philosophy and endless theological speculation, those seeds that have grown and are now the winding vines we struggle not to be choked by. In verse 13, the triplet begins. It says, Then God went up from him in the place where he had Debar with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had Debar with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had Debar with him, Bethel. This is certainly a subtle detail in the Hebrew, both of these triplets, but the presence of any triplet should not be ignored. This one is especially important considering the buildup we have been discussing. The text could have chosen another word, it could have left out these details altogether, but it chose to include them, and it chose the verb debar. It's hammering into us over and over again the implications of this scene. God is establishing his word with Jacob once again, and Jacob has been well prepared to hear it. No more of Jacob's debar. Now it is either God's or nothing. And remember, as a verb, this word debar has formality to it. God is not dialoguing with Jacob. He is proclaiming to Jacob. He is speaking with authority to Jacob. Take all of this into account 
and we can understand the gravity of Jacob's response. The last time he was at Bethel, and he heard from God in his vision, Jacob talks. He goes on and on, dialoguing with himself, spewing nonsense. Now, just like the previous chapter during the scene with Shechem and Hamor, Jacob is silent. He is looking more like his father, Isaac, instead of his mother, silent and responsive. He doesn't have anything to say. God told Jacob to build an altar. Jacob builds an altar. In fact, he built an altar before God blesses him and renames him, which is the focal point of this chapter. Uh, The first altar, he calls the place El Bethel. But after God debar with him, Jacob set up another altar, and he calls it just Bethel, like before. This is an intriguing contradiction, but I don't think it's really a contradiction. I think it's once again showing Jacob's progression of understanding this God, and it's the Bible being subtle and placing trust in the audience to hear what it is trying to say. So Jacob listened to God, and he named the place El Bethel at the first because he understood the authority God has over the place because he is the God of the house of God. But then, after he speaks with God, Jacob names it Bethel, because he realizes that there is a house of God, but God isn't just a God over the house of God or the God over other gods in some sort of Mesopotamian mythological hierarchy, but this God is the God. So Jacob removes the clarifier in the name Bethel and changes it back to Bethel. However, it isn't Beit El, as in the house of God, that was the stone that Jacob functioned into an idol in chapter 28, but it is Beit El, Bethel, as in the location that Jacob entered to encounter God, who he now has a much more mature understanding of. Again, these details are subtle, but they are not arbitrary. It is all pointing toward Jacob's growing understanding. He is not encountering God at the house he built for him, but Jacob is in Bethel. He is in the house of God, which is everywhere. I'd also like to talk about how this interaction sheds a deeper light on the names Jacob and Israel. In his book, rereading Isaiah 40 to 55 as the project launcher for the books of the law and the prophets, scholar Iskander Abu Char draws a parallel between the renaming of Jacob to Israel with Isaiah 40 verse 4, which reads, The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Here the word for uneven is akob, which is from the same root as Yaakob, the original Hebrew of Jacob. The word for level is mishor. Mishor is from the word yashar, which means upright. Now this is where things get interesting. In Hebrew, this word is spelled yod shin resh, which make up the first three letters of Israel in Hebrew. The last two letters, Aleph and Lamed, obviously refer to El, the generic name of God. Thus, we have a change in meaning. In chapter 32, Israel referred to one who was contentious and hostile towards God and man. Here in chapter 35, it is referring to one who has been made level by God. And this isn't the first time this has occurred in Scripture. It reminds me of when Abraham is commanded to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. I pointed out that in Hebrew, it sounded like Yahweh bitters or something to that effect. That is appropriate with the context because the situation is embittering to Abraham. 
But once the sacrifice is stopped by the angel of God, the meaning is revealed to be from the place where God provides or from where God sees. The meaning is only clear due to the context of the story. I think a very similar occurrence is happening here in Jacob's renaming to Israel. Yeah, at the very least, we can see the importance placed on the actual functional scriptural God committing the name to the character Jacob himself. Jacob, affirming the name Israel for himself, has no value, so the text never referred to him as Israel up until this point. However, it is here in this chapter that Jacob, within the text, is finally referred to as Israel by God and again by the text. First, a quick recap. God commanded Jacob to go to the place he appeared to him long ago in chapter 28 and to build an altar there to that God. Jacob obeys and God appears and speaks with him, and he renames him after that display of obedience. Then, Jacob obeys once again, constructing another altar, but he is not giving this altar the function of being a house for God like before. Instead, he calls the place where God debar with him, Bethel, indicating that Jacob realizes he was in God's house, not in control of God's house, i.e. through an idol. Then they journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. In this next section, we are reminded of Abraham's story where whenever he finally seemed to be in the right, he takes a hard left turn back to his old ways. You can never be so definite with these characters. That is why even though God has given this new meaning to Israel, as I said earlier, Jacob can still function either way. The same is true for the people of Israel throughout the rest of the scriptures. On the one hand, they represent the community of God's people. On the other hand, they commit the worst form of blasphemy, which is to be aware of God's commandments, but disobey them anyways. Jacob's behavior here is echoing this. His beloved Rachel is dying in childbirth and names her son Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. Jacob uses this opportunity in order to give his son a more powerful name, which is Benjamin. In Hebrew, this word means son of the right hand. To be at the right hand of someone is a sign of power and authority. In the New Testament, Christ is declared to be ruling at the right hand of God the Father, so this idea should be familiar to us. It's also evocative of him setting up an heir, since Rachel was his favorite wife, and in turn her sons Joseph and Benjamin will be his favorite children. Benjamin is also important because it is his tribe which will spawn the first real king of Israel, who is Saul which makes perfect sense because that image of being at the right hand is also a regal one. See Psalm 110 for a clear reference to this. So this is a lesson from the authors to once again not concoct culture heroes out of these characters. These are not success stories. There are no success stories in the Bible except for Christ's passion and resurrection. But even then, it's not the success story we are accustomed to. His success was allowing his enemies to destroy him so he could ultimately save them by his destruction of death itself. 
So no other character is successful. Everyone fails in the Bible, even Isaac, who sends his son Jacob to Mesopotamia. Right, and I'd also like to point out the duality between Jacob's name and his new name of Israel. This will certainly be something we keep an eye on as we progress throughout the text. The name Israel has been legitimized by God's use of it in his renaming of Jacob to Israel in this chapter, but the text will continue to use both names. It is here that the text itself calls Jacob Israel for the first time. Even immediately after God renames Jacob, the text still calls him Jacob. It's only in verse 20 that we hear it refer to him as Israel. How does this happen? Why does this happen? Let's hear the verse. It says, So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. So Jacob sets up the pillar and mourns the death of his favorite wife, but then Israel journeys on and pitches his tent beyond the tower of Eder, which means flock. This is the classic biblical thematic juxtaposition, the positive and negative comparison of terms or events. Jacob is the one who mourns the death of his Mesopotamian wife, who embodied or symbolized Jacob's worst greed-minded qualities, i.e. the qualities of his mother, i.e. the qualities of the city. Remember, we just heard about the death of Deborah, the nurse of his mother. Deborah, the altered Debar. Deborah, the caretaker of that Mesopotamian city-oriented wickedness that the scriptural God is actively commanding the central biblical characters to abandon. First Deborah, then Rachel. The pillars of the city are falling, the third being Rebekah, who has yet to fall. So Jacob sets up a pillar for Rachel, but it is Israel who moves on and pitches a tent. He does not set up a city, but he pitches a tent by the flock. That is the function of the true Israel, to be a shepherd. To be a Bedouin, desert-dwelling shepherd is the scriptural ideal, and that is why the text calls him Israel specifically in this instance. That is the positive Israel that God called Jacob to be. So Jacob mourns the death of the regal, swindling, capitalist city mindset that he loves, but Israel moves on through the desert and sets up a temporary tent by the flock. These themes have been long established, so the way they are used here are subtle, but they are no doubt present. We have to observe them. And before we continue, I want to briefly remind everyone what God said in verse 11 through 13 after renaming Jacob to Israel. Since Jacob is not forcing his own dialogue, God can actually continue to speak his debar to Jacob. It is in line with everything I just said that we recognize the fact that God doesn't rename Jacob arbitrarily. Not only is the expectation of nomadic shepherd living assumed, but the very renaming of Jacob comes with a command which goes as follows. I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Do the characters listen to this command? Let's see. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, 
Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. The first thing I'd like to mention is the behavior of Reuben, which appears at first to be somewhat random, but as we know from scripture, nothing is ever truly random. It's been a while, but it's good to recall that Reuben was the firstborn son of Jacob. The name Reuben has two possible meanings. One is that it is from the Hebrew phrase ra'aben, which means see a son. Another possibility, which is particularly interesting in this chapter, is that it is from ra'beoni, which means he has seen my sorrow. Now, if we recall the original name of Benjamin, it is remarkably close to Benoni, the son of my sorrow that Rachel bears. So if that's the case, Jacob's first and last-born sons both contain the same root word, that word being evocative of sorrow and misery, foreboding to be sure, and it would make sense of this apparently random insertion into the story. It's poetic to hear that Rachel and Leah's sons are tied together by this root. Leah was the lesser of Jacob's wives in his own preference, so his real concern was to have progeny through Rachel, who was barren originally. Once Rachel does have children, Jacob's efforts prove to be ultimately futile. His unpreferred son Reuben is marked by sorrow and misery, as is his preferred son Benjamin. Not only are his efforts futile, but this event goes to show that his priorities are still not scriptural. Again, I want to point to the usages of Israel and Jacob. In verse 22, it says, While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Then it goes on, The sons of Jacob were twelve. What's going on here? Well, at the start of verse 22, Israel is functioning positively. However, Israel, the functional character, is Jacob. The only difference is function. Abraham was essentially perfect in behavior after his name change, so the changed name given by God stuck, and we never heard of Abram again. Isaac was perfect in behavior almost his entire life, and God named Isaac before he was even conceived, so he never had a name change. Jacob's name fluctuates between Jacob and Israel because he is so unpredictable and arguably the most complicated character we've heard of thus far. So back to the main point, what's going on in verse 22? The positive Israel is living near the flock in Eder, while Reuben, the firstborn, lies with Israel's concubine Bilhah. This is an outrageous act. The oldest son, Reuben, has sex with his stepmother, his father's wife. I know it's technically Jacob's concubine, but the concubine carries the scriptural function of wife-childbearer established by Adam in Genesis 2. So, Genesis 30, verse 4, where the text calls Bilhah a wife of Jacob, uh, is a place that you can look if you're still unconvinced, because it outright calls her a wife. So Reuben commits this wicked action, and the text says that Israel heard of it. So what did he do? Nothing. It's sarcasm. He heard what happened, but he didn't care enough to do anything about it, no matter how troubling or reprimandable the thing was. What does the text think about this? Well, it doesn't come right out and say it, because it's assumed that it's bad news. In almost every culture in the world, this arrangement of stepson and stepmother having 
sexual relations would be disturbing. That assumption being present, it should come as no surprise then as to why the text reverts to calling Israel Jacob once again at the end of verse 22. It's nonchalant, it's subtle, but the weight of the matter is heavy. Israel behaved appropriately and was thus referred to as Israel, but he did not correct this wicked thing committed by his oldest son, who is naturally the second in command in the household. This action committed by Reuben is creating disunity, and Israel had a responsibility to Bilhah as her slave owner or husband, or however you want to put it, but he failed to uphold that responsibility and maintain peace. Due to that apathy on Israel's part, he is once again called Jacob. Jacob is the one who can't be bothered. His concerns are selfish. Once his favorite wife dies, he can't give a damn about the others, so when one of them is disgraced by his son, who cares? Right. Well, Jacob, you are Jacob once again. It is such a fast shift back to the negative tone of Jacob's past, and it makes perfect sense too, because Bilhah, the one who was taken advantage of, the one who was in the lowest, most unfortunate position, her name means to be troubled. We had a verse and a half of the positive Israel before trouble was wrought due to the behavior of one selfish character, and the positive Israel is no more. But that's not the end of Israel. Again, the text will continue to use both names, and it's up to us to pay attention and hear what the text is trying to communicate by its use of either name. So we have to pay attention. It's also important to note that right after we hear about Reuben sleeping with Bilhah, we get another exposition of Jacob's 12 sons as a reminder of how all of this relates. We have Reuben, the firstborn who is marked by sorrow. The next two sons, Simeon and Levi, represent the upper echelon of Israelite society because they are the ones who will represent the religious authorities. The Levites are the priests, and Simeon means to be heard. So Simeon is the one who hears the law and knows it. Next, we have an interesting player, which is Judah. Judah is, in a sense, the only survivor of Jacob's children, and he is born to Jacob's unpreferred wife. For Judah will be the forefather of the Davidic line, which culminates in the Messianic kingdom carried over into the New Testament. Also, Judah has been absent from these stories so far, but moving forward, we will have his own narrative, which has interesting implications for his character and for the Judahite kings. But regardless, Judah is also important in that it is his name which will be carried by the southern Israelite kingdom and even be carried politically by the Judeans who will use this name to distinguish themselves from the other nations. This is, of course, referring to the biblical Jews. That word Jew ultimately comes from Judah in the historical province of Yehud in Palestine. The other sons mentioned of immediate import are Rachel's sons Joseph and Benjamin, which will cap off this family since they are the last to be born. Joseph gets split into two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, which become powerful in their own right, and we will hear quite a bit about them. And next, Benjamin has some of the most negative attention because Saul was a Benjaminite, and his kingship is extremely short, and with the death of his son Jonathan, he died without an heir. So we are really just now getting started. Not just with the Bible, obviously, but even with the book of Genesis. The next section will give us an exposition of Esau's progeny, and then we will start straight into the very long Josephine novella. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. 
and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Lastly, we have a peaceful ending to Isaac's life, where he is buried by his two sons in a similar manner to how Isaac and Ishmael both buried their father Abraham. With the death and burial of Isaac, we start a completely new chapter in the story of Genesis, which will deal less with the after effects of Abraham's actions and deal more with the behavior of Jacob and his children. In other words, much of Jacob's life was characterized by being reminded of Abraham's career. In the coming chapters, there will be some of that, but for the most part, it will catapult the story forward quite a bit and serve as a strong setup for the conditions under which the Israelites will eventually find themselves under the bondage of the Egyptian pharaoh. And a peaceful end to Isaac's life is well deserved. Isaac was the obedient lamb to the slaughter. He is the best example of godly living we have heard of so far. But something is amiss. Did anyone notice that we have not yet heard of Rebekah? She isn't a whole lot younger than Isaac, most likely, and in this death scene of Isaac, she's nowhere to be found. She's not even mentioned in the slightest. The last we heard of her was earlier in this chapter, when her nurse Deborah died. Well, spoiler alert, the text never covers Rebekah's death. In chapter 49, when Jacob eventually dies, he's buried in the family cave that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, and the text makes a fleeting statement that, indeed, both Isaac and his wife Rebekah are buried there. However, the biblical text never covers the death of Rebekah. She just disappears from the purview of the story. Why is this? Well, I mentioned earlier that we have three female characters that serve as these type of symbolic pillars of the greedy, city-minded lifestyle that Jacob is defined by. We have Rebecca, the mother of Jacob, and the inspiration for Jacob's earliest beguiling behavior. Deborah, the nurse or caretaker of that woman who embodies all of those things, ergo the city. And then we have Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. Deborah and Rachel die, and the text illustrates something positive about Jacob's progress as a character when they die, because their deaths symbolize the falling away of the Mesopotamian city mindset. However, Rebecca's death goes unreported, and for those who have been paying attention, that should foreshadow the eventual downfall of Israel. The city sits on three pillars, and no matter how hard people work to leave the city and live in the wilderness according to God's commandments, at least one pillar stands firm in their hearts. That pillar holds up the ego, the greed, the selfishness of the human being that they take with them from the city. For the sake of this story, that remaining pillar is Rebekah. Israel will fall into his old ways, whether it's he himself or the people that come from him. And like Blaze said, there is no success story here. There are so many subtle storytelling devices being used to clue us into the fact that the brief conclusion of Jacob's development, culminated by him being renamed to Israel, is not a conclusion. It's not a success. Bilhah, trouble, is on the horizon because the son of the fraud lays with her. See you all next week, God willing.
This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.